Hey there, this is Back Channel Radio producer Suzanne Hogan. Before we get started with episode Boathouse 101, I just want to say that this episode is part one of a six-part series, so you're going to want to listen in order, and episodes are going to drop every Friday for the next six weeks, along with special bonus bits throughout the week. And you can support this project directly. Every little bit does help. Just go to backchannelradio.org. A special thanks and shout out to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place that explores our ongoing and historic relationship with water and presents great art inspired by water. Located in Winona, Minnesota. Learn more at mmam.org. A back channel is an unofficial communication channel, a place used to make informal or subversive negotiations. It's a term you hear a lot in political contexts to describe a line of communique, a backdoor entrance. Ultimately, it's a conduit, a stream that connects ideas. Geographically speaking, the back channel is the smaller of two channels in a river that diverge to form an island. The main channel hosts the immense barge traffic, commerce. It's the primary channel, the mainstream. But here on the back channel, we're more underground, and it's potentially always under threat. This is Back Channel Radio, a Wolf Spider Island story. Stories from beyond the mainstream. I'm Gina Favana. I live here on Wolf Spider Island, aka Lower Latch Island. Since 2013, I've been living in a boathouse along the Mississippi River in a community of other boathouses. Wolf Spider is the smaller island. It's just below the main island known as Latch. It sits on the back channel of the Mississippi River across from the town of Winona, Minnesota, near the Wisconsin border. I live on the waters of the back channel, in a boathouse, not a houseboat. There are a few houseboats here, but mostly just boathouses, or more accurately, floating homes. Imagine a mosaic of small floating dwellings. Hundreds of turtles climb out of the muck to sun themselves on black logs slick with neon green duckweed. Gar spawn in the shallows between them, their lurching mating dance virtually unchanged for eons. When seen from above, the boathouses present a multi-hued, variegated quilt, at once rugged and quaint. Each boathouse is unique, each shape specially dictated by necessity, resources, and the vision of the builder. Most of them are small. Picture a shack with one or two rooms built upon an undercarriage made of floating blue plastic barrels. These structures are tied to the shore and most have a little walkway. The boating lifestyle so prevalent here in the land of 10,000 lakes divided by this iconic river wasn't part of my upbringing. I'm from the East Coast originally, I grew up in a city. So when I first started digging into the story, there was almost nothing online. Since then that's changed a little, but it's still hard to get the whole picture. The best way to tell the story is to talk to people who actually live here and to do a lot of research. By and large, the majority of the photographers, TV crews, and writers who visit this place often miss the most important parts and ask all the same trite questions that only skim the surface of what it's like to live here. Questions like, how do you get your power and where do you go to the bathroom? Today, we're going to take a closer look at these funky houses and meet some of Winona's most unique individuals. Nowadays, images of these floating homes are used in brochures and souvenirs promoting the town of Winona. There's even guided boat tours that float by our homes during the months the river is solvent. Folks, uh, we're going to make our way upriver here. And uh, before we head upriver, I want to take you across and show you Latch Island. But these dwellings weren't always seen in a celebratory light. The germ of the idea for this project started as I got to know my neighbors. Most of them older people who've been living here since the genesis of the island community. Their lives revolved around weather and changes with the river cycles of flooding, a daily practice of maintenance and hauling, 
hauling water, hauling fuel and food. Who was going to tell their stories? We wanted to stay under the radar. They weren't calling them squatters, they were calling them hippies, you know. That's where things started to sort of crumble. So we had to build a case that, well, we had a right to live here. In these next six episodes, we'll hear about why some of the island dwellers ended up here and what it takes to live this way. This place is special in general and in particular to the people who are part of the boathouse community and also to a lot of the local Winonans. Where the water meets the land is a blessed, sacred spot. People have come here to find themselves, some to heal, some to hide from the world. She said Latch Island changed her life. A few years ago, I started recording an oral history of the Boathouse community. Throughout this series, you'll hear some of those stories. We'll dive into the complex legalities of these boathouses and the long fight the islanders had to wage to protect them and explore what this place might look like in the future. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'd like to see the culture preserved on Latch Island, but you know, a lot of cultural resources and some of the groups in Winona that were kind of creative and interesting have kind of gone away. We're calling this episode Boathouse 101, because before we get into the backstory details, there's some key points that must be explained about the earlier history and the context of living in this unique place. So first, I should start out by telling you a little about the person behind Latch Island's name, John Latch. John Latch was born in 1860, the son of a Swiss immigrant. He was a businessman and philanthropist in the Winona area, an eccentric bachelor who loved to explore and canoe the backwaters. Latch never owned a car or a motorboat. He preferred his little canoe as his modus operandi. John Latch was a very quiet man that was very successful. This is a clip from a documentary called John Latch, The Man and His River by Mary Farrell. You know, the story goes that, you know, one day he was on one of these typical sort of paddling up river and, and a storm came along and he pulled alongside the shore and was waiting out the storm and a farmer came down and chased him off the land. And he thought that, you know, nobody should be denied uh, the use of the river and uh, the river shoreline and uh, he sent his agent up there the next day to purchase his property and uh, that started him uh, on this quest to buy this land for the public. In addition to the humanitarian aid he was known for, such as giving large amounts of food and money to the poor, John Letch donated nearly 20,000 acres of land to the public in Minnesota and Wisconsin during his lifetime. He intended that the acres were, quote, to be left in their wild state so that the game and birds would have an unmolested home and so that the public would be assured of having permanent recreation grounds. This area would look very different had it not been for John Latch. Today that lavish endowment includes land in Latch State Park, Perot State Park, Prairie Island, Augamine Park, the list goes on and on. Island 72, as was known by then, was a small scrubby island that was only accessible by boat for many years. It was not part of the original donations, but while John Latch was mayor of Winona from 1905 to 1907, he orchestrated leasing the island from Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, who owned it, so he could then fund a public bathhouse on the island. It was his response to the many drowning deaths of children swimming unsupervised in town. Island 72 has since been known as Latch Island. The bathhouse existed for almost 70 years until 1974. Eventually it was torn down. Everybody mentions John Latch when they talk about Latch Island and its boathouse community and the history but there's also a deep indigenous history here. So for a little geographic context, 
This area is part of what's known as the Driftless Region. It encompasses parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois. Driftless refers to the lack of drift materials left behind by the glaciers. The result, a landscape that looks very different from the rest of the upper Midwest. It's covered in high hills and rocky bluffs, but there's still water everywhere. In 1978, the late Myron A. Nillis wrote a book called A History of Wapashaw's Prairie, which covers some of the indigenous backstory of this region. In that book is one of the only written claims of an early structure being built on Latch Island, a cabin built by a missionary who was trying to convert the Dakota tribe to Christianity. Reggie McLeod is a local journalist and creator of Big River Magazine, who did a second publishing of the book along with the County Historical Society. Yeah, that book's outstanding, and it was really fun because it was out of print for a long time before they asked us to redo it. The area where the town of Winona sits was originally known as Wapashaw's Prairie, after Chief Wapashaw of the Dakota people. Eventually, it came to be called Winona. There were mounds in Winona. Some were burial sites, some were not, but they have all since been destroyed. One of the mounds that was desecrated was the burial site of Chief Wapashaw's children. It's actually near where the current-day County Historical Society stands. The book, while written from a white-centric point of view, is still a valuable resource. Reggie McLeod says it provides important insight into the peoples who probably lived here before colonization. The Dakota people were familiar with this area and they probably had lived here for a couple hundred years, but they probably lived farther north. If you went back about 300 or more years ago, they were probably up in the uh, Twin Cities area and, and Mille Lacs. And the Oto and the Iowa Indians probably lived around here. See, they were related to the Dakota people. They're in the same language group, the Sioux and language group. Same with the whole Chunkart, too. When we talk about who is where and what happened and all that, we have to be careful because it gets kind of confusing. And the biggest part of the story that's left out is that when the Europeans came over here, somewhere between 80 and 95% of the Indians died from the diseases that they got. And so when we see these nations, these tribes, a lot of times they were remnants of, of maybe several different communities that were together just to survive. And so there was just a lot of turmoil. The Indians lost a lot of their stories in that process too, of course. So, it, you know, it would be, if you could imagine that 90% of the people in Winona died, what would be left? Well, it wouldn't really represent the culture that we have now in Winona. It would be very different just because it would be a survival type of culture. Essentially, what I'm hearing Reggie say is that like a lot of histories, there's a lot we know, but a lot we don't know. Much of what happened in this area prior to about 1750 is unrecorded. What we do know is that at some point, probably not too long after Native people were violently displaced, other people, mostly poor people, started building shacks along the river near what would become Latch Island, actually down the entire length of the Mississippi. Though the floating community here on Latch Island, what this story is about, is the only one with full-time residents still left standing or floating. It was a tradition on the river, though. Every town along the river had a boathouse community, and um, they were called shanty shanties you know uh or shanty boats because sometimes people would pull them down the river so before the lock and dam system was built a lot of the river during a dry summer would only be a few feet deep 
My partner, Gertie Tonjum, lived here before we got together. He's from the Midwest. He grew up on boats. Sometimes he builds them. He's gone down lots of rivers, the whole Mississippi and parts of the Mekong. We started out by spending the warmer half of each year at the boathouse, but since 2019, we've been here on the river full time. I had been here before Gertie and I got together. Latch Island is sort of an underground mecca on the subculture's radar for traveling weirdos and touring punk bands. There's a small park with big trees and a sandy beach where John Latch's bathhouse once stood. There have been some epic shows here on the island. DIY punk bands like Black Rainbow and my producer's band Nature Boys. And my band from Pittsburgh, Come Holy Spirit. When I first started living here, there was a period of adjustment, to put it mildly. I'd lived off grid before. I've stayed in tents for long stretches of time. I've lived in a school bus I used to have that I converted to run on used vegetable grease. I was no stranger to roughing it, but roughing it on land and roughing it on water are two different animals. To help you understand what it's like, I'll begin by describing where we live. Our boathouse, the dome as it's called, is one of the largest ones here. 42 by 42 by 21 feet high. It's not located in a marina. None of the boathouses are. They're moored to the island. Originally built in 1973, it was once a true geodesic dome, but now just pieces of the triangulated roof remain. The sides of the dome, sodden and half sunk, have since been replaced with 11 angled walls. It floats on 100 blue plastic barrels. We live on the lower end of the island. You can't drive up to it. Not unless the river is frozen solid, in which case you can. It's never not surreal to me to be driving over the ice. All your water and fuel has to be hauled in, constantly. The allotted spaces for boathouses here are capped off at 101. I'll explain why in a later episode. People living in boathouses have to pay a mooring fee to the city. The boathouses, or floating homes, are held aloft by racks of pressurized barrels. They used to be metal barrels, and before that they were logs or sometimes telephone poles. But in the last 30 to 40 years, plastic barrels have become more plentiful. They're easier to maintain than the metal ones, and you do have to maintain them. Occasionally, one will need to be replaced with the aid of a tool called a barrel popper, which you have to use to pop the new barrel under your place. It's hard and can be a little scary. Yeah, the big thing is just like respecting the water, you know, it's making sure you're not doing something reckless, you know, you're just trying to, something eventually is going to happen, but you, if you prepare for it ahead of time and know what to do, then you don't panic, you just instinctually do what you need to get out of the danger. This is Gertie. First time I came to Winona was when I was a part of a big flotilla with um, 13 boats, all of or um, 13 of my friends and myself built boats and um, came through Winona. It was 2004 and um, we heard about Latch Island, but I had never been here even though I grew up two hours away. Gertie acquired the partially sunken dome around 2006, and it quickly became a passion project of epic proportions. 
a project that I inherited in 2013 when I also started working on it. These days, it's finally approaching being done or redone. People would stop by and be like, oh, my God, I'm so glad somebody's resurrecting the dome, you know, because it's really iconic on or at, you know, on this island. And everybody around here has a story about because it used to be a big party spot. Island life back in the 70s when the dome was first built was a pretty wild scene. Those reptilian deceivers abused their believers and nearly enslaved us all. The Boathousers were a diverse group of people. Inventors, writers, UFO enthusiasts, bird watchers, hippies, and river rats, all of whom wanted to get more in touch with themselves and nature by living off the grid on the water. People were really excited about it getting resurrected, and I was like, well, I guess I'm resurrecting it, you know? So um, what did you have to do? What were the first... Well, the first thing I did is um, that next winter I jacked up the whole thing um, on the ice. Wait, with what? How do you jack up a... With bottle jacks and um, four by fours and... Um, yeah, I had it all jacked up. I had probably 40 jacks holding up the roof. And then I cut out the whole interior and um, put new lumber. Rebuild all the barrel racks and then I started build, rebuilding all the walls. So I think the only thing that's original at this point is the roof and the loft. Everything else has been redone. Nothing's ever just fixed. It's a constant cycle of maintenance. But once we got the basic amenities figured out and the major roof leaks addressed, I started to get to know a few of our neighbors. They were mostly elders in those days. People who had been living here off the grid since the community's inception in the mid-1970s. Some of whom have since moved on to other places, physical and otherwise. Most lived alone. They were guarded, tough, sensitive, and truly interesting people. But they all shared a common feeling about this place, a feeling that really speaks to Gertie. Well, the first time I ever walked on one of these places, it just felt different than living on land. Like I, I always say that it, I finally felt grounded, which is kind of weird to think of water being grounding, but it is. I just like instantly felt super comfortable. The community was and it still is really interesting to me because you're living in the middle of the Mississippi River and you're at the whim of nature. You kind of instantly have something in common with people around here and you help each other because um, you just completely out of necessity. You have to rely on each other a little bit, you know. There's an element of danger present in living here that doesn't always get acknowledged. But maybe it's because the people who grew up here don't see it that way. I never think about it because when you grow up in Minnesota, you're so close to water everywhere you are. So it's, it's just a culture of making sure everybody knows the dangers, um, prepares for the dangers. But there's some things you can't anticipate, like when you and me and John 
saw that kid drown across the way. Yeah. But it, it sounded like he didn't know how to swim, and he was... Well, that's what I'm saying, and it was, yeah. he just got, you know, he stepped into a hole. It wasn't like he yeah was trying to be reckless. He wasn't, he didn't jump off the bridge or yeah anything like that. Yeah. I mean, there's some things that you just... Um, can't avoid, I guess. The incident we're referring to happened a couple of years ago. A young man tragically drowned across from our boathouse. We helped look for his body before search and rescue found him on the river bottom, close to where he had gone under. Each year, there's at least one or two drownings in the area, or bodies that are found in nearby waters. It's just part of the reality of living here, and one of the things that news stories never seem to cover quite right. Like I said earlier, they tend to focus on the more quirky aspects of the community. It always feels like they miss the mark somehow. Like this old local TV show where the host repeatedly refers to them as houseboats when they're actually boathouses, which is a big difference. But did you ever think what it would be like to live on a body of water in a houseboat? There are several houseboat communities in our state. One in Saint Paul, they get lots of other stuff wrong, too, like important facts and just have a general lack of effort in trying to convey the real spirit of the place. But this lady from a local TV show filmed around 25 years ago, I think, actually did a pretty good job despite the music. Hello, I'm Joyce Woodworth. Welcome to the spirit of Winona. Across the river from Winona is Latch Island. On the other side of that island stands numerous boathouses. The term boathouses is really a misnomer here because most of the so-called boathouses do not house boats. They're actually river houses with plastic barrels underneath to keep them afloat, and inside are the residences of over a hundred or so people some of whom live year-round in these interesting establishments. Today we're going to take a closer look at these funky houses and meet some of Winona's most unique individuals. On the lower end of Latch Island, east of the old wagon bridge, is another island. From the water, it appears as one with the upper latch island, but there is an inlet that separates the two. This island is known as Lower Latch or Wolf Spider Island. It cannot be accessed by car and does not have any electricity. There's a floating footbridge that connects the two islands. And a footpath that takes you to the 15 or so boathouses that occupy this part of Latch Island. Most of the media coverage about the boathouses over the years tends to remain superficial, sensationalist even. One of the cooler moments in the Back Channel's journalism history was when the Calypso, the seafaring vessel of renowned French explorer and conservationist Jacques Cousteau, came through on the river in 1980. The famous French ocean exploring ship, the Calypso, arrived at Lock and Dam 16 near Muscatine shortly after noon today. Amid cheers of hundreds of spectators and an escort by the Calypso helicopter, the ship's crew of 26 oceanographers made their way upriver with plans to shoot a film about the murky Mississippi and other rivers of the world. And then there was even the Squarespace ad that was filmed here in 2017 that featured Winona Ryder, who was named after the town. It ran during the Super Bowl, and I remember some people fearing the potential influx of people moving here that such publicity could create. But that didn't happen. 
I came here to find the true Winona, to become a Winonan, and I did. But what I didn't realize is how much I'd discover about Winona along the way. And that Winona is Winona Winona, not Winona, right? Photographers and reporters galore have visited the island and continue to, but no one's ever taken the time to fully explore the complete story of how the communities come to be in the first place. Or so I thought. And then I found my neighbor John Rupke's archives in a tiny floating shack at the end of a dock. I found binders and binders full of documentation that contained the real meat of the story of this place. I wondered why this wasn't in a museum somewhere. And that was the spark that ignited this whole endeavor. Hundreds of documents, collected from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, carefully bound in chronological order. One particularly compelling binder read Wolf Spider History in gold letters on the front, with Now is the Time written below. And on the inside cover in red sharpie, Remember the past, influence your future. I had discovered a real-life pot of gold at the end of a watery rainbow. There were notes from city council meetings, early type draft of negotiations and proposals about the boathouses, handwritten poems and observations, countless clipped newspaper articles starting to crumble in the damp environment, despite the obvious care that was taken in their presentation. My neighbor John had left them there, on the shelf inside a dilapidated shack, so that the information, the journey of this community, could be accessed by anyone who cared to read it. But you had to know it was there, or be lucky enough to stumble upon it like I did. It was around this time that my role in the story began when, with John's permission, I first started to digitize several decades worth of paper material to be housed in the records at the County Historical Society. Then it grew to interviewing John, 22 separate times spread out over the course of a couple of years. Spending so much time interviewing one person left me with more questions, so I started talking to more people to fill in the gaps. But then I realized that these stories deserve a wider audience, which brings us to this podcast. I didn't interview every person here or record every story, but hopefully what I did get will convey a complete picture of what this place is like, what it feels like, and what happened, and maybe where it's going. This is Back Channel Radio, a Wolf Spider Island story, a podcast about the history of the Latch Island Boathouse community, and about the life of Islander John Rupke, who you'll get to know next episode. In a lot of ways, I guess I was a radical in advocating for gay, the gay agenda of um, equality and justice. Back Channel Radio is researched and written by me, Gina Favano, and edited and mixed by producer Suzanne Hogan. Grace Ambrose designed our website, backchannelradio.org, where you can find photos and bonus material. It's also where you can donate to the project. Every bit helps. We heard audio of this episode from the Spirit of Winona, courtesy of HBC-TV, Squarespace ad featuring Winona Ryder, documentation of the Calypso from 1980 by Tom Talbert, Minnesota State Lottery Environmental Journal television show, and a clip from John Latch, A Man in His River documentary. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Black Rainbow, Come Holy Spirit, Nature Boys, and the Weird Winonans. Thanks to Captain Aaron of the Winona Tour Boat, Reggie McLeod, the Winona County Historical Society, my bandmates Aaron Lindbergh and Sam Pace. A huge thanks always and forever to the original Wolf Spider Islanders and everyone who loves this place. And special thanks to the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council, the John Latch Board, the Awesome Foundation, individual donors on Patreon. 
Thanks also to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a vibrant and bustling nonprofit arts museum that engages visitors in meaningful experiences that explore our ongoing and historic relationship with water. The Minnesota Marine Art Museum is a place that's committed to ecological stewardship and justice. Learn more about their exhibitions and programs at mmam.org. Again, if you want to see more photos of the boathouses, go to backchannelradio.org. You can also support the project there and find us on Instagram at backchannelradio. Stay afloat.